discussion about Mariana Ortega's in-between feminist phenomenology, multiplicity, or Latina feminist phenomenology, sorry, multiplicity in the self. And in the first episode, we got up to about chapter five, about the first half of the book, and we went over um, Ortega's discussion about world traveling, about multiplicity, about the contradictory self, and what that necessarily means for um, feminist thought, especially Latino feminist thought. Now this will begin here with chapter 5, so titled um, Multiplicitous Beings, I believe, if I'm not uh, lying to you. Becoming. Multiplicitous Becomings, right, uh, in which we be, she begins to talk about identity politics and how she makes a distinction between her own line of thought and how identity politics is often taken up pretty much outlining the uh, limitations that she sees in it. So, Alain, say, say hello, Hi. If, if you'd like. Uh, I won't introduce you again. You, you know, go to the last video for that one. Is there anything you want to start out with here? Um, yeah, I think that uh, Ortega has a really interesting view of coalitional politics or coalition politics um, in that for her it's about the relationship between the self and the other um, so and, and again she's using Lugones' work uh, among others um, so I think one of the interesting concepts that she talks about is the possibility for becoming with and she says that that's the possibility that her relations with others with whom she fights oppression is an experience that stands to change both who she is and her understanding of the world she inhabits. And that is paraphrased pretty much directly from uh, 146. Um, so I think that by this concept of becoming with really um, it allows for her conception of the multiplicity of the self to fit within this um, version of coalition politics in an interesting way. Yeah, absolutely. But it, to me, that sounds like it could easily fall under the umbrella of identity politics if we consider uh, there being differences and, and simply, um, I guess, fostering those differences or trying to work within those differences that... So my question is, what is the distinction that she makes between her vision of coalition politics and where she sees identity fall politics falling short? Well, I think it's because uh, she's challenging the way that identity politics is often um, perceived as being about one's own like personal identity and having that in common with others. Um, and I think that her critique of that view, which I don't think is necessarily like the only way to talk about identity politics or the right way even. I think that that's just like a popular way. But um, I think her critique of that is that um, there's this idea of sameness within that way of talking about identity politics. Like I have the same piece of identity as you. And I think that she finds that problematic and 
she's critical of that and I think that her um, discussion of like the becoming with others uh, or the other is um, sort of um, an alternative to that way of thinking. Right. So in her words, she says that um, yet there is a need for rethinking the concept of identity so that it will be it will not mean sameness, essence, or ahistoricity, and for reconfiguring identity politics so that it is not conductive to homogenization, essentialism, fragmentation, or separatism. Yeah, and I think it's really important when she talks about essentialism and ahistoricity, um, because like someone saying. Um, I'm a woman, and you're a woman, and therefore we share that identity, um, is, is obviously really problematic. Um, being a woman means different things to different people in different times and different places. Um, you know, being a woman in uh, the U.S., being a white woman in the U.S. today is very different from being even, even just a black woman in the U.S. today. That's only one of, like, many sort of... Um, context that you could think about so I think that it's a fair criticism that she has or a fair sort of not criticism but a fair uh, point I guess yeah absolutely and earlier on in the book uh, she makes a distinction between like Anzel Dua who is you know this tenured professor Tina uh, tenured professor and those other people that actually live in the interstices right live in that uh, borderlands area which problematizes that idea of just saying like oh uh, Latina women have a different experience than white women because then we we have to question what does Latina necessarily mean there are you know degrees to that right yeah which I think is what she's trying to get at is that we have intersectional feminism but she doesn't want it to stop there with just these kind of uh, homogenizing terms where Latina just means this yeah, but I don't think that she's saying that that's what intersectional feminism does. I think that she's saying that that's how it's taken up, and that, yeah, that okay. taking up yeah. of it is problematic. Yeah. And I think the same about coalition politics. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if she would think about identity and degrees um, necessarily either, but but certainly like the, the, the piece about homogenous, sameness, um, essentialism is important. Yeah, and that would be the distinction that she makes similarly earlier on between ontological pluralism and existential pluralism, where an ontological pluralism would imply that there are uh, quantifiable, kind of understandable, mappable others that fall into this general discourse of difference, whereas she wants to problematize that and say, like, no, these contradictory selves are uh, very difficult to grasp. So it's not so simple as saying, like, oh, you over there, and your identity is what you embody, and that's it. Like, and we can wipe the slate with it. Like, she really wants to complicate that, at least. that That's what I get here. Right, and this, this is illustrated well when she uh, states this, that it is this ability to see various perspectives from various worlds that is especially important for multiplicitous selves because it allows for the possibility of critical reflection and resistance. And I have a question for you here, then. Resistance to what? What is what does this resistance look like in Orte in the context of Ortega? Oh, I think she's talking about oppression. What does that look like? 
oppression, what racism, exclusion, white supremacy, sexism, and homophobia, how, certainly. How does this fostering of a multiplicitist self or a contradictory self challenge that? Well, I think that's what she's getting at with Lugonis in the first half of the book, where she's talking about um, multiplicity uh, and world traveling. Um, so we're talking about thinking from different perspectives in different ways. I think earlier in the book she talks about um, resistance and world traveling uh, as connected to new possibilities. This is page 100. New possibilities of understanding oneself, having different attributes, of seeing oneself as capable of overcoming fear and domination, and as being creative and skillful in spite of the perception from the dominant group that considers that self as unworthy, inferior, and expendable. So it's just... Okay, because I am curious. When we speak about oppression, I feel like it often takes um, a deceptively homogenous... Uh, it assumes a, a deceptively homogenous character. So when we use these terms kind of broadly, like oppression, I feel like that is, we're not getting at just how uh, pernicious, just how multifaceted it is. So I think that in a sense, obviously, uh, Ortega is pointing to an interesting form of resistance, but I think uh, if we don't think about oppression as being like kind of in the Foucauldian language, kind of occupying these capillary functions, then we are running the risk of not actually developing a discourse that will approach it. So if we develop a discourse about multiplicity to attack a force that is homogenous, I don't know if these two things can actually come together. Yeah, I don't know if it's um, something homogenous at all. I think that the problem when you start listing types of oppression um, which she doesn't do, and I guess could have done, is that then you're, you know, she's un she'd be undoing the work that she's doing here when she's critiquing views of identity politics as like this list of types of oppression that uh, add up, or yeah. and that that some people get to claim and others don't. So I think yeah. when she's talking about resistance, it's not like a specific resistance to a specific type of oppression. She's talking about resistance, critical reflection, um, broadly. Uh, and that can take many different forms for, for different folks. Yeah. So I, I don't know if she could have done that a different way, and, and it still makes sense within the context of her book. Because I, I, I read it, like, affirmatively in that way, or, or I agree with you, because I think that one of... And this is made manifest in her critique of how, I, how you clarified how identity politics is often taken up, not necessarily what it is per se... So in that way, I think one of the things that she fears are these kind of homogenizing forces, right? Or those forces that kind of want to subsume things under a certain category, under a certain framework, that makes them easy to understand, easily digestible. And I think that by opening up this discourse about contradictory selves, she's in a, in a sense doing that work of destabilizing those kind of homogenous forces. Yeah, I think she does a really good job of... Um straddling that line between the, the specific and, the, and the, the general and the broad. I mean, early on that 
on in that page, she says, my gender and sexual orientation help shape my experiences further through them I understand and navigate possible unwelcoming spaces. Um, later on, she says, the same page, while teaching in a predominantly white school in a predominantly white neighborhood, I am in the U.S. white world, but I do not share U.S. white identity. And then at the, the like later on, we've got the quote that you read about um, critical reflection and resistance. So um, she's, I think she's very careful, and she talks about this throughout her book and in the introduction um, of speaking to specific personal experiences that she has without generalizing those experiences to, to all. And I think that yeah. when you're reading this, you understand that she's coming from a specific place, um, and that, but and yet that the things she experiences aren't unique to herself. Yeah. That other people experience similar things, um, though obviously always in, in different ways. Yeah. Um, and you know, interpret and react and experience those things differently. Um, but at, at, at the same time, she's not. Um, this isn't sort of that essentializing philosophy of you know where you're. Uh, applying a blanket experience to um, an entire group of people, or to yeah. the human race, even. Yeah. No, for sure. That's a, that's a very good point. So in generating this distinction between um, the identity politics that she sees as being not quite as resistive as she would like it to be, her form of coalitional politics uh, coalitional politics takes on this form, or, or it assumes three, there are key, three key elements, sorry, and they are as follows. The first being an understanding that coalitional politics is both a matter of being slash belonging as well as becoming, which includes location, being with, and becoming with, that lead to transformation. The second element is an attunement to the intersectional or intermeshed aspect of our identities or an understanding that the experience of multiplicity selfhood is informed by the intersection of various axes of power. The third element is a recognition not only of shared oppression, but resistant agency, which is dependent on what Lugonis theorizes as complex communication that can lead to deep coalition. So to that, I have a... Do you want to add anything to that now? Because I have a question for you, if you'd like. Sure. What... How can we classify this as a mode of resistance if one of the greatest, at least what I will call greatest, one of the greatest forms of oppression that is, you know, advanced industrial capital in the age of globalization, what that necessarily looks like, does exactly the same thing. It transforms, it adapts, it accommodates, um, and it essentially uses that very logic to capture and snare, kind of take over otherness, right? Just because it has that kind of, um, it has many faces, and it, it can assume many different faces. So in what way does this logic, the one that Ortega sees uh, as being a, a, a resistive potential in coalitional politics, to what extent does it, in a sense, actually mirror that same broad form of oppression in the form of capitalism. Uh, if it does. I think I'm, it mirrors um, capitalism. I, I think that like, the word transformation can be used in a lot of different contexts um, without necessarily being related. Um, 
think that when she's talking about transformation here, um, find the quote. Um, I think that when she's talking about transformation in this context, she's talking about um, the transformation of, of the self as the self interacts and learns from and with others. I think that's the the, the point of the becoming with. Um, I think that the, the this sort of transformation speaks to the fluidity of identity um, and of identity politics to her, the, the fact that it's dynamic and that, um, you know, transformation therefore can happen from that, that constant change, um, from the fact that it's not fixed and stable. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I see a link with, um, capitalist forms of oppression. Well, is um, there anything to be said about those people that don't have an opportunity to undergo this kind of transformative potential, right? To, to um, take advantage of that. Well, you I know, think the people when you're interacting them. with the world, you're transforming at, at all times. Like, I don't think there's a way to avoid uh, the, the, like, the fluidity of being, I think, is what she's sort of talking about. Um, and in terms of the, the coalitional politics specifically that she's pointing to, um, she's, you know, she's talking about um, belonging to different groups by virtue of some characteristics, such as race, gender, sexuality, ability class, and so on, um, as part of our material conditions. And then she says, um, uh, yeah, however, common location and material conditions are understood by way of a complex nexus of meanings that are shared. So, um, I think that, you know, folks who, um, who might share some characteristics and not others, um, if we're talking for her about race and gender, sexuality, ability, class, um, that she's talking about not understanding those material conditions as these stable, fixed, essentialized, ahistorical, like, p parts of identity that you sort of hold on to and own, um, and that bond you with others. And I think she's thinking, uh, like, yes, these are material conditions that exist and they're important, um, and they have real material consequences and effects, but she's thinking about them as a little bit more complex um, in that they're fluid, they're changing, they're interconnected, um, they can't be neatly separated from one from the other. Um, and, and I think that, like, transformation for her, it's not like this thing that happens once and you're transformed, it's like a, just a, a speaking to that, that fluidity and that complexity of you just constantly being transformed and transforming yourself as you're interacting with the world in, in these different changing fluid contexts. Like I would certainly agree that transformation is inevitable. And I don't want to necessarily hierarchize different forms of transformation, but I think that there is, and especially the logic that permeates now in the West, you know, this kind of 
um, traveling culture, tourism culture, whatnot. There's a very, there's a lot of cultural capital associated with one's ability to demonstrate their uh, cultural um, uh, literacy. And I think that that is oppressive. So I think there's a distinction to be made between like just transformation for the sake of transformation and this kind of resistive transformation that Ortega is talking about. Because I don't think she's doing that. I don't think that I she's think messing she's up. I don't think she's doing that either. And I, I think, like, if we think about um, Simone de Beauvoir becoming woman, or um, better yet, um, Ortega quotes Alexandra Mohanty about becoming a woman of color. She says on page 164, the experience of becoming a woman of color is instructive about the active process of identification rather than a passive or a given politics of location. I think that's the type of transformation that we're talking about here. Right. But I agree, you're right. But there is something to be said about how transformation, how world traveling, how these things are taken up. And she does address that in the first half, right? She says that it's not simply about putting yourself in other cultures because that is you know, very problematic in, in some way. But this notion of transformation has been made, uh, kind of co-opted, kind of appropriated by, you know, white middle-class people that look at all the, the, the Netflix specials that love, white people love traveling to different places and allowing that sort of transformation to occur within them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a different question, like whether this these concepts have been co-opted and appropriated, like certainly you could argue that they have, but I don't know that that's what she's doing. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so either, but isn't it important to address if we're using kind of these broad terms like transformation or world traveling, like in what ways have they been used? Yeah, yeah, certainly that can be addressed, yeah. But we don't have to labor on that point any longer. (laughs) Unless you want to, I don't know. Do you? Um... No, I think certainly like that 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 is something that is worth talking about. Um, but I also I wouldn't want to um, like I wouldn't want to talk about that uh, at the, at the expense of talking about what Ortega is actually doing right here. Um, yeah. So yeah, moving into the next chapter, she, she uh, brings in a new concept that is a post-positivist realist theory of identity, or PPRI, as she refers to it here in brackets. But PPRI is an account of identity worthy of attention due to its in-depth treatment of the claim that there is a causal connection between identity and social location, i.e., the self's location in terms of race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, and so on. But she goes on to say that her project, or her goal in this chapter, is to analyze the post-positive realist view of social identity, or PPRI, as proposed by Moya, with the aim of showing that this theory of identity undermines multiplicity, and thus does not fully capture the lived experience of multiplicitous selves. So again, we're still working within this this, um, kind of resistive paradigm against homogenization, Mm -hmm. or against the easy connection between in this case, um, a geographical territory or a social location and identity, where mm-hmm. there's a you know, teleological sequence from one to the other. Right. 
or in her words, a kind of resistance to the Aristotelian notion of nows mm-hmm. uh, that impose on people a set identity from which they can't change from, from which uh, they are they are essentially condemned to. Right. Which I think, you know, that this is where I personally read, um, where I find this the most interesting, is in a kind of thought experiment way, thinking about how this, these kind of homogenizing forces can then lead to, you know, the rendering of people as docile bodies, people as those that can be, because they can be mapped, because they can under, be understood, they can be put under the, you know, panoptic gaze or whatever, can then be, I guess, made to do whatever uh, is expected of them in a way. Yeah. I don't know, you had, okay. you had a funny facial reaction. Do, no, is that, is that not fair? Is that true? Yeah, tr- for, no, for sure. That might be moving a little bit too far away from the uh, the text here, because that's not exactly something that Ortega gets into. It but sounds like you're, you're um, using a lot of Foucault to to think through this book. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I I gravitate towards that idea because I'm I'm still in in my heart of hearts. I see there. I don't I don't think she's as elaborate on these forms of oppression that she could be. So I just kind of try to fill in the blanks to apply, um, to, to kind of give that oppression a sort of face or identity. Ironically, it, it's non-contradictory. It's a homogenous self in itself. Um, but she then goes on to say that uh, we can think of these selves as not experiencing themselves moving from one identity to another, truer identity but having an... But, Sorry, but having various experiences ranging from not identifying at all to identifying with multiple identities to experiencing glimpses of past identifications while holding on to present identification, identifying with a salient, uh, a salient identity in particular worlds and so on. And as I mentioned earlier, this is all in resistance to the Aristotelian linear sequence of nows, mm. which I, I don't know if you have anything more to add to that. Um, about the temporality aspect of her? It, it, yeah, if you have anything to say about the temporality aspect, that would be cool, If or if not. Um, well, I think, you know, and this is related to our conversation about transformation, as well as temporality, um, I think that for me what's most important, well, not what's most important, but something that's really important and interesting um, is her understanding of the multiplicitous self um, and the the experiences of multiplicitous selfhood as um, not, like you said, not this linear moving from one identity to another. Um, and, And also, she's really critical in this chapter of an understanding of of one single truer identity that you're moving towards like uh you you know you haven't yet figured out what identity is is most you or is best for you until you come eventually to this identity that you find um and then and then that's that's who you are and that was that's the best identity for yourself i think she's really critical of that i think she 
And that's really important to me because I'm really interested in trauma and identity. Um, because, you know, she's talking about moving through identities at different times or at the same time, moving from an identity to another, um, but without one identity being more accurate and truer. And I think, too, without one, one identity being um, bigger uh, or necessarily being like alone um, and um, yeah sort of like I think we have a lot of difficulty with with this concept I think that um, when we're thinking about psychology and, and identity we're, we're often thinking about like who who am I um, like what's the truth of my identity and I think that I really like that she's um, critical of that idea that she's saying like perhaps different identities at different times were better for you uh, for you then perhaps um, choosing w one uh, name for an identity doesn't mean that you're not no longer uh, another part of your identity that you can inhabit lots of identities different identities at the same time and this is again the, the idea of contradiction too that we spoke about uh, earlier um, and sort of I mean she puts it a lot more clear clearly than I just did um, but on page 181 she says we can think of these selves as not experiencing themselves moving from one identity to another truer identity but having various experiences ranging from not identifying at all to identifying with multiple identities to experiences experiencing glimpses of past identifications while holding on to present identification identifying with a salient identity in particular worlds and so on i think that sums it up nicely yeah absolutely and i really i like how you frame that in relation to psychology that relies very heavily on you know, cer certain, uh, um, what is the term, like, not character types, but, uh, like, personality types, I guess? Yeah, the big five. Yeah, and which, you know, grossly simplistic, Yeah. that reduce people to these kind of archetypal type structures, when, yeah. you know, obviously it's much more complicated than that, and not, e it's not as though we even need to apply some kind of, like, analytic rigor, or epistemological rigor, and say, oh, well, in Mongolia, it's different because of that. But in any given context, in any given, you know, societal setup, cultural framework, or whatever, yeah. among you can never reduce people to, yeah. you know, five, six, twelve. Like it's yeah. I think impossible. what Ortega's doing there is so much more complex than than um, than any of that. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that she would even engage with that sort of thinking. No, the, it's wasted. This is this is the the, the great thing I think about this book and it which makes it difficult because we you know as, as humans it be. <laughs> yeah and you know there's we run the risk of alienating people when speaking about this because there is a drive and I don't know if this is a contemporary phenomenon or it's just been what people have always gravitated towards but it's but simplicity especially simplicity in categorization, which I think whether or not now it's only becoming possible, especially with this book as an example, to resist that. But I think it's yeah. interesting nonetheless that, that she's, um, you know, thinking about it in this way. Yeah, that, certainly. And I think we could get into a whole other conversation about that 
Um, that would be a little bit getting away from the from the book itself, but certainly the, there's a pull towards the, the understanding the self that she, I don't think she's she's trying to do there. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, we have the kind of postmodern discussion that is going on. She also mm -hmm. wants to resist that, right? She yeah. she doesn't yeah. want it to just be like, oh, whatever. Yeah, it's, cultural it's based in material conditions. I think she's she's very clear about that. That she's not. This isn't just theory um, up in the air. This is real material conditions that are felt. Um, and I think that that's why her, her the examples of her own life that she that are speckled throughout the book are really important. Yeah. So on one end, she you know with PPRI there being that very easy connection between um, the material conditions of life, whether it be the land or whatever, and social identity. She also doesn't want it to be the total opposite, right? Where there's absolutely no connection. Any relationship we have to the material is purely. Um, um, a, a linguistic one. It's one that only exists within within the text. So she's trying to think of a space either in between or outside. I think she's just she's just showing us that um, that theory doesn't need to be separate uh, from from real life. I think that she's just um, that her that her work is. Uh, and, and and vice versa that work on real lived experiences isn't not theory so I don't think it's straddling a line I don't think it's being in between or, or doing both I think that they're again they're interconnected and the one doesn't mean that the other is not happening yeah which I think is a good a good place to segue unless unless you have more we can do the, no. the last chapter here which kind of changes gears yeah. So it's titled Home Tactics, and she, in this she kind of lays out a praxis. She kind of she wants to think about this. Uh, you know, what are the possibilities for, um, you know, survival in a sense? How do people make it through this 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 world? And for her, it ultimately comes down to home tactics. Now she's clear that she doesn't that it's kind of ironic to use the term home. Because she says that the home question is particularly, di particularly difficult for the multiplicitous self, whose life and context are such that she has to continually world travel. And thus the home question becomes a question of homes. Because home kind of implies this sort of territorialization, a, a kind of grounding, if you will, that you know resists that potential for change, for transformation, or whatever. Yeah. But besides that, besides her initial kind of, um, she kind of lays that out as a disclaimer, What what is a home tactic for, for Ortega here? Well, maybe we should just read from, from the text to, I, to begin. That is perfect. So she says, um, 203, she says, a decentered praxis that is at the same time capable of having a general aim or result. The aim of home tactics can be understood as the production of a sense of familiarity in the midst of an environment or world in which one cannot fully belong due to one's multiple positions and instances of thin and thick not being at ease. Then later on, 2000, uh, sorry, 207, she says, 
While home tactics can be said to have this general aim, no specific set formulation of what these practices look like is possible, since one of the main features of tactics are precisely their unmappability and their working blow by blow, taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. So I think your point about um, the the contradiction in, in the use of the word home is interesting. I think that my interpretation of the way that Ortega is using home is that you're, you're right and that she, she doesn't want this comfort and familiarity to be um, like this permanent territory. Also, she talks about colonization and um, later Richmond we can get to. Um, but but if, to me, it's kind of related to that conversation from earlier on in the book about the thin and thick not being at ease. And I think um, at least my interpretation of that is that um, she's talking about the the potential for resistance in this not being at ease, um, and you know how that can lead to world traveling. But I think that to her, there's also a limit where um, if you're if you're the, the the sense of not being at ease is too thick uh, and too permanent then um, that can cause, I forget what her, her wording is, um, um, yeah, I think that um, she's not trying to romanticize um, this, this, the sense of not being at ease um, in saying, like, in, in denying the the oppression and the 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 anxiety and the the threatening um, the danger of it, but um, but I think um, and I, I couldn't find it in the in the book in the the quick minute that I looked through it, but I know um, in our conversation with her that she does acknowledge um, certain types of trauma that are too much to bear and that um, perhaps that potential is, isn't there. So I think my interpretation um, is that though she's encouraging, she, the, not encouraging, but though she's, she's acknowledging um, and, um, and speaking to the potential of, of the, the thin and thick not being at ease, um, I don't think that that necessarily means that she doesn't want us to have some, to, to be able to find some sense of comfort um, where we can. I think that's how I understand home tactics. Yeah. And I particularly uh, enjoyed her um, the part where she's talking about um, one of her home tactics um, and is talking about sort of painting her walls and her house bright colors to remind her of home. Um, I think it's kind of a lovely little little uh, example. Um, but certainly, she's also very clear that she doesn't want uh, like a a passive comfort that um, erases that potential for resistance. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, like the distinction is important is important, even though she doesn't want to, or she's also 
hesitant to draw a clear distinction between tactics and strategies. She does say that strategies imply um, um, a mapping out, right? That strategies imply a kind of preemptive organization intended to uh, elicit a certain result. Whereas mm -hmm. a tactic, with tactics, there's a certain spontaneity behind it. There's mm -hmm. a certain immediacy that I think for her, I'll, at least opening up the possibility of survival to that kind of discourse allows those people that don't necessarily have the means to go about strategizing to, in a sense, create these spaces for themselves, right? Yeah, I don't know if she would use the word strategizing. Um, well, that's what she's opposed to, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is sort of like an in the in the moment. No, exactly. Yeah, and that's what I mean. That's what yeah. that's what a tactic oh, okay. is. Is, yeah, is yeah, it yeah. the spontaneity attached with right. um, tactics, which is in opposition, I guess, uh, in opposition to Deselto, where she says that Lugonis is right on the mark to expose the weaknesses of Deselto's characterization of strategies and tactics in light of the possibility of a more sustained liberatory project or a spatial politics. I welcome her proposal for a more intersubjective, fluid, spatial politics attentive to difference and leery, leery of clearly marked dichotomies. Yeah. Because for her, even if, uh, you know, DeSelto is, is well-intentioned with uh, by establishing a tactic as opposed to a strategy, she sees a limitation to that in that it implies, you know, a kind of binary relationship that would inevitably follow the same kind of route of homogenization that, that she so fears. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think another uh, sort of to, to me that I, that I quickly mentioned earlier, a really important part of her, of this chapter, um, is when she's talking about home tactics, she makes a very clear distinction um, between the the dominant the, the cells in dominant positions using home tactics um, and marginalized cells using home tactics. And I think I just want to emphasize this um, because I think it's so important. She writes on page two hundred nine. Nevertheless, the worrisome issue is the possibility of these selves in dominant positions using home tactics to satisfy and carry forth colonialist and imperialist desires. Um, another way, she says, to make the point is by asking whether the colonizer can engage in home tactics if he does not feel at ease in specific contexts of the colonized society and whether he can engage in those practices as a way of imposing his home in the new territory. And I think that this is particularly important, not only in terms of the historical significance of uh, of colonialism. She talks about the British, Spanish, and other colonizing countries bringing their home with them to new places of conquest, um, but also because it's such a relevant conversation to have today um, with you know all the the freedom of speech talk and the um, the safe spaces and. Um, trigger warnings and all that. Um, so I think, you know, and she says very well, uh, while initially some of the practices might be in fact a matter of being more comfortable in unfamiliar environments, one can easily see how these practices become impositions. 
in these cases, I would say that those practices the colonizers used in order to bring their homes with them cannot be seen as home tactics in the sense described here. They do not represent ways of making do in unfriendly, unwelcoming environments for the purposes of creating comfort in a life filled with difficulties due to one's in-betweenness, marginalization, and oppression. They are sustained, intentional practices with the specific purpose of imposing one's way of life on a world that one considers inferior and inhabited by inferior beings. Um, and so again, coming back to this distinction between strategies and tactics, she says these practices become strategies intentionally deployed to undermine, demoralize, and chip away at the fabric of a society that is not regarded as worthy of respect. So um, very different, obviously, yeah. than what she's talking about. Yeah. No, it's a very good point, and it's it's. I I really like that she um, takes that up because there is always that risk that someone's, you know, theoretical discourse could, would would be mobilized or used for. Yeah, she's careful to think about how it could be interpreted in the wrong hands. Yeah. Uh, and, and it she, is being interpreted in those ways, like as we've seen and continue to see of people comparing, um, like safe spaces to exclusionary white supremacist spaces, for example. Yeah. And it's on that note that she, she ends the book when she says that, recall how Hegel wrote that women are like plants and that Africans could not arrive at Geist. Hegel's views of women and people of color being just two of the many reminders of the narrow, restricting, and alienating intellectual space of philosophy, a space that I precariously inhabit. And her final line is, I offer you these words, these thoughts. I carve out a space for me in this philosophy that is never, that was never meant to be a home for me. This is one of my home tactics. Mm -hmm. And so on a very beautiful note in that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. A lovely ending. But follow, following the book, she has a, an afterword, which we don't have to uh, get into here, but there's a, there's a, um, I, I regrettably call it funny, but she says of Kant uh, and Hegel that how many texts written by women and men of color are read in philosophy classes? How many of these texts are taught in the courses in Introduction to Philosophy and Continental Philosophy? When Hegel or Kant or other great figures of philosophy are taught, are there inappropriate, racist, sexist remarks taught as well? Ah, but those views are characteristic of his time, many will say. Mm. Many more will complain about imposing contemporary attitudes concerning oppression to high historical periods when these concerns found no expression. And there will be the ones who say that the, that the type of philosophy they teach just doesn't have anything to do with, with, with particularity. So universal are their concerns that there is no need to bring cultural, historical, or social considerations or issues of social identities. Let those who teach literature, psychology, and sociology do that work. Let them digress. Or, there are not, there are not just, there are just not that many works by people of color or women that could be used. Or, I just do not know that literature. I need to ask a person of color to give me that information. Mm -hmm. A very nice jab there in, in the um, afterward. Yeah, I like how bold she is there, um, and I think that she's probably feeling that particularly hard because she writes these great, you know, she's written this, this great work and she's written a lot of great works and they're obviously not taken up in the same ways as um, a lot of white male philosophers' works. Yeah. 
or some people might not even call it philosophy. No, no, no. This would be cultural studies <laughs> or or, uh, or women's studies. It, it doesn't doesn't fall into that camp, even though it's heavily laden with, you know, Heidegger. But it's, it's yeah. you know, using Heidegger bastardedly or whatever. Not, uh-huh. well, you know, Heidegger's not really used in analytic philosophy departments, but even, well, even in, in continental, continental philosophy, yeah, no one, no one cares about this stuff because yeah. it doesn't. It, it's yeah. funny because continental philosophy proclaims to communicate um, or be a kind of antidote to the universalist assumptions made manifest in the, you know, analytic tradition or whatever. But at the same time, it always seems to gravitate away from very selective groups of people that don't don't get read just because it's like not worthy or people just yeah, just coincidentally nice. aren't interested in yeah which is I'll leave that criticism with you <laughs> what do you mean what you think people won't like that mm. <laughs> well if you got a problem with it you know you know how to leave it but on that note <laughs> unless you have anything else to say Alain no I think we covered it well I think yeah I think we got through it here uh for those of you that listen this far, thank you very much. And like I said, if you have any beef with us, or me specifically, you know how to leave it. There's a dislike button for a reason. But anyways, for those that listened and enjoyed and got something from this, I know I did. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.